The text for this morning's sermon is Luke 1, the verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's often difficult for us to put ourselves in the shoes of other people. It's hard to relate to others if we have no understanding of their lives. It's especially the case in situations where we have experienced many blessings in life, while others have gone through a lot of trauma and struggle. This also applies to our study of the Bible. The Bible tells us about real people who in many ways are just like us. But if we don't understand their circumstances, we miss out on much of what the Bible seeks to teach us through God's dealings with them. God's people Israel went through much trauma and hardship. In 586 BC, the Babylonians exiled God's people. Their homes were destroyed. They were displaced to a foreign land. After 70 years, God allowed his people to return to the promised land. Yet they faced ongoing persecution. In the centuries leading up to the coming of the Christ, the Greeks and then the Romans exerted control over much of the then known world. In Jesus' day, Roman governors ruled Israel. The people that they employed to exercise control were by and large scoundrels. We read this morning from Psalm 80. It outlines the plea of God's oppressed people. In it, the psalmist calls on the Lord to come as the great shepherd of Israel. He pleads for the Lord to restore his people. The psalmist notes that the Lord has fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. God's anger against their sins had smoldered and they had experienced much suffering. The psalmist compares Israel to a vine. The Lord delivered them from Egypt. He drove out the nations from Canaan. He planted his people there. Israel took root and grew once it had prospered and been a mighty nation. 
But now the vine has been broken down. It's been burnt. It's been uprooted. And thus the psalmist and through him God's people pleaded, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. There's a desperate plea for restoration. Mary Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, and the other faithful in Israel knew this psalm. They would have sung it and prayed it. But the psalmist calls out, Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Who was this man at God's right hand? This son of man that God would raise up for himself? None other than the promised Messiah. The faithful in Israel were looking for his coming. They were eagerly expecting him to come, to deliver them in the dark and discouraging times in which they lived. You can imagine the joy in the hearts of God's people when they realized that God's promises were about to be fulfilled. They rejoiced, they praised God because he was fulfilling his gracious promises to send the promised Messiah. In our text, we'll see how Mary herself responds to the Lord's blessing of giving her a child. She too sings forth a song of praise. She magnifies the name of the Lord. She rejoices in God, her Savior. Together with Mary, we too rejoice in God's blessings in Christ. In this Christmas season, we focus on why the Lord Jesus came into this world. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Mary magnifies the Lord for providing his for his mercy in providing the Christ. In her song, Mary remembers God's covenant faithfulness. She rejoices in God's mercy in granting a Savior. And she prophesies of God's complete fulfillment of his promises. In our text, Mary sings a song of joy and praise. Her song is often called the Magnificat, after the first word of the Latin translation of this song. In this song, Mary magnifies the name of the Lord. She glorifies and praises God for the mighty things he has done for her. He has taken her, a poor maiden in Israel, and made her most blessed among women. For the Lord was using her in a miraculous way. She was going to be the mother of God's Son, whose name would be called Jesus, that is, Savior. It's through her that the Lord God would provide the Messiah to sit on the throne of his father David. It was through her that God's kingdom would come. Mary shouts forth a song of praise to the Lord for his mighty deeds. Her song is full of quotations and references to the Old Testament. Commentators have wondered if Mary perhaps had her Bible open in front of her when she sang this song. They forget that all pious Israelites learned songs from the Old Testament by heart from childhood and sang them in their homes and in public worship. 
These references to the Old Testament make it clear. Mary understood what the Lord was doing through her was in fulfillment of his covenant promises. Striking to note the similarities between Mary's song and that of Hannah, recorded in 1 Samuel 2. Mary repeats various phrases that Hannah first sang more than a thousand years earlier when the Lord blessed her with a son, Samuel. The following phrases find parallels in Hannah's song. My soul magnifies the Lord. Holy is his name. He has scattered the proud. He has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. These similarities show us there's a close connection between Mary and Hannah's songs. There are also striking similarities between the times in which these women lived. Hannah lived in the time of the judges. She lived in days when every man did what was right in his own eyes. She lived in a time when the Lord had to raise up men to deliver his people again and again. Yet the centuries of rule by Israel's judges had not helped God's people. Every time their current judge died, the people again fell away and they served other gods. The result was that the Lord sent Israel's enemies to chastise them. The priesthood was not going very well. Eli was getting old and his sons were corrupt. They treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. They slept with the women who assembled at the doors of the tabernacle. Hannah had promised the Lord that if he heard her prayer and granted her son, she would dedicate him to the service of God. When the Lord granted Samuel, she fulfilled her vow. At Samuel's dedication, Hannah prayed a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. In her song, Hannah rejoices in the Lord and his salvation. He has vindicated her by taking away her barrenness. But what's even more important is that the Lord would use Samuel to establish his kingdom in Israel. Hannah sings about how the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It was Samuel who anointed Israel's first kings. It was through him that the Lord established David as theocratic king. It was through him that the Lord gave his people peace. In the days of Mary, things were not going all that well in Israel either. It's important that we try to put ourselves in the shoes of God's people living at that time. The kingship of David had fallen by the wayside. Israel was governed by foreign rulers. We know from Daniel's prophecies and from other historical sources that the Greeks had brought much trouble on Israel. Consider what happened in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century before Christ. After pretending peace, he sacked the city of Jerusalem. He killed tens of thousands of the men. He took captive the women and children and he plundered the city. Antiochus Epiphanes then wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that they should each give up their own customs. Antiochus sent messengers to Jerusalem forbidding the daily offerings, 
the sacrifices that were presented before God each morning and evening. Without these sacrifices, public worship was impossible. Instead, Antiochus set up idolatrous altars. He ordered the Jews to offer and eat unclean sacrifices. His hatred for the Jews was so great that if any Jew participated in any Jewish ceremony, the penalty was death. Antiochus Epiphanes' opposition to the Lord God himself became clear in an infamous event that occurred on December 16, 167 before Christ. He made the Lord's temple in Jerusalem a place of worship for the Greek god Zeus. Antiochus had an image of Zeus put in the temple, and then he sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. The blood of the pig was then smeared all over the inside walls of the temple, completely defiling it. Under the Maccabees, God's people revolted. They waged bloody warfare against the Greeks for many years. About a century later, the Roman ruler Pompey captured Jerusalem and subjugated Israel to Roman rule. During the time when the Lord Jesus was born, an uneasy truce had developed between the Romans and the Jews. The Jews were subject to the Romans, but the Romans allowed the Jewish religious leaders to exercise oversight in religious matters. Yet many in Israel found it difficult to be forced to have their names enrolled in a census or to pay taxes to those hated Roman authorities. That is the context in which Mary receives a message from the Lord's angel Gabriel telling her she would be with child, that she was to call his name Jesus. The angel told her he will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The Lord told her that her son would reign over the house of Jacob forever. That of his kingdom there would be no end. And therefore, in her song of praise, Mary remembers God's covenant faithfulness. In Luke 1.50, Mary says that the Lord's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Here, Mary refers to Psalm, to Psalm 103, verse 17, which says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Mary sees God's gift of his son, Jesus, as a fulfillment of his promises to show mercy to his people. The Holy Spirit leads her to sing a song of praise to God for his covenant faithfulness. In verses 54 and 55, Mary gives thanks that God has helped his servant Israel according to the promises he made to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God had promised Abraham to make him the father of many nations. The Lord had promised, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's through Mary's son, the Messiah, that God would show forth his grace 
to his people Israel. You see, beloved, the Lord Jesus would be someone far greater than Samuel. Samuel was a faithful servant of the Lord. From a young age, he served in the tabernacle as priest, teaching the people about God and presenting sacrifices for them and praying for them. God also used Samuel as his prophet. Through Samuel, he made his will known to Israel. God also used Samuel to rule over his people. Samuel filled the void between Israel's last judges and her first kings. We see that Samuel had a priestly, a prophetic, and a kingly role. And yet he was but a humble predecessor of our chief prophet and teacher, our only high priest, and our eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Together with Mary, we praise the name of the Lord for his covenant faithfulness. He sent his son, the Messiah, into this world in fulfillment of his promises. Our Savior came to bring about redemption for all those who believe in him. He came to restore us in our relationship with the Father, to give us peace. God sent forth his Son as our chief prophet and teacher, who made known to us the way of salvation. God sent forth his Son as our only high priest, who would not only present the sacrifice, but who would be the sacrifice for our sins. God sent forth his Son as our eternal King, who would defeat all our enemies and ascend the throne of David to rule over us in righteousness and truth forevermore. Together with Mary, we praise the Lord for sending his Son in fulfillment of his promises. This brings us to our second point, and it will see how Mary rejoices in God's mercy in granting a Savior. God's mercy toward his people is a central theme in Mary's song. In verse 50, Mary sings, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. And in verses 51 to 53, Mary specifically mentions the way in which the Lord showed forth His mercy. She says He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away, empty. In our Bibles, these verses are translated in the past tense. They are presented as events that have already happened. Yet the Greek text uses a tense in which the time is not specified. It's important for us to understand this. For the point Mary is making in her song is that it's through the sending of his son that God would accomplish all these things. It's through the child in a room that God would show forth his power. It's through the sending of his son that God would humble the proud and exalt the lowly. It's through the Savior Jesus Christ that God would feed the hungry but send the rich away empty-handed. In these verses, Mary describes two groups of people. 
On the one hand, there's the proud, the mighty, the rich. And on the other hand, there are those who fear God, often the lowly, the hungry. Who are these people? And what has Christ's coming got to do with them? Well, the proud, the mighty, the rich are those who rely on their own resources. They're often in positions of authority, and they take what they want. The poor, the lowly, the hungry are those who often lack the basic necessities of life. Often they're oppressed by the rich and the mighty ones. In her song, Mary describes a great messianic revolution that would come about through the child God has given her. She sings about how God would reverse the roles between rich and poor, between the mighty and the lowly, between the hungry and those who had plenty. The proud, those who exalt themselves and take no account of God, would be beaten down by his mighty arm. The powers that be, those who oppress the poor and the lowly, would be deprived of their power and of their high standing. Yet God would grant his blessing on those who fear him. Those who are truly humble would be exalted to great things. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to grant salvation to all those who believe in him. Jesus did not form close friendships with the powerful and the mighty in the land. Instead, he opposed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They laid heavy burdens on the shoulders of the common people, but they were not willing to carry those burdens themselves. While pretending to be righteous, they devoured widows' houses. They neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And therefore Christ opposed them in his teaching, even pronounced woes upon them. Yet our Lord showed great mercy on the poor and the oppressed in Israel. He had compassion on the multitudes because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He made the lame walk. He cast evil spirits out of those who were demon-possessed. He taught his people that he was the bread of life. He called them to believe in him and so share in the blessings that only he could provide. And so while the rich and the mighty missed out, Jesus provided salvation for the poor and for the needy in Israel. Christ came into this world with a very specific purpose. Besides serving as our chief prophet and teacher, he came as our only high priest. John the Baptist revealed Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As the good shepherd, Jesus came to give his life for his sheep. Christ was willing to walk the road of sorrows, to drink from the cup of suffering. He came to offer his body and blood as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. It was only in this way that he could pay the ransom required to set us free 
It's only by dying for us that Christ could give us peace. When Mary sang her song of praise to God, she already saw the beginning of a great messianic revolution. She knew of how the Lord had granted a child to her cousin Elizabeth in her old age. She knew of how God had miraculously caused the Savior to be conceived in her womb. Mary saw how God had taken two poor and lowly women in Israel and exalted them to great positions in his kingdom. A barren woman was allowed to be the mother of John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the Savior. Mary was blessed by God to be the mother of his son. Therefore, she rejoices in God's mercy in sending salvation to his people. It brings us to our final point. And we'll see that Mary prophesies of God's complete fulfillment of his promises. Earlier on, we've noted that our Bibles translate verses 51 and following in the past tense. Even though the actions described in these verses have not yet been completely fulfilled, they're presented as if they have already happened. There's a particular reason for this. The point our text wishes to make is that God will bring about a complete fulfillment of his promises. Mary sings about God's mighty deeds as if they've already happened because she's absolutely sure the Lord will finish the work that he has begun. Looking around in the world today, it does not seem like much has come of all God's mighty deeds spoken about in our text. The world is still full of the proud, the rich, the mighty. And they still oppress the poor and the needy. Has God shown forth strength with his arm? Has he humbled the proud and exalted the lowly? Has he fed the hungry and sent the rich away empty? Then why is the church of Jesus Christ persecuted in so many countries? Why are Christians mocked and ridiculed for their faith? Why are so many around us allowed to live trouble-free lives while we often face hardships and struggles in our lives? Is God truly working on our behalf? In answering these questions, it's important to note several things. The first is that the kingdom of God is not of this world. Nowhere in the Bible do I read that God has promised us a trouble-free life on this earth. What God has promised is that we may share in the blessings of Christ. In him, we find salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, righteousness in Christ, and everlasting life. Further, God has promised to hold us fast, to preserve us. Our lives on this earth may involve hardship and tears, God will walk with us 
through the valley of the shadow of death. His rod and his staff will comfort us. He will lead us onwards on that narrow pathway leading to life. Further, it's important for us to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ has won the victory over sin and Satan and death. After suffering great humiliation on this earth, Jesus has been highly exalted. He's now sitting on the throne at the Father's right hand. Jesus Christ is our eternal King. He rules over us with His Word and Spirit. Just because you face struggles and hardships does not mean that God does not care about you. Just because you may not see how God is at work in the world around you does not mean that He is not active. Do you remember that small stone in Daniel 2, which destroyed the great statue and grew and filled the whole earth? Do you remember the parable of the tiny mustard seed that became the greatest of all the garden plants? The kingdom of God is growing. It will reach its fullness when Jesus Christ comes back on the clouds of heaven. God's promises will be completely fulfilled at the return of our Savior. And so we hold fast the Beatitudes. Christ spoke to his disciples in Luke 6, the verses 20 and following. He said, Blessed are you when you are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. As children of our Heavenly Father, we look forward to the complete fulfillment of God's wondrous promises. And beloved, we do so with trust and confidence. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also freely give us all things with him? Will not the God who has begun his mighty work in us not also complete it to his glory? Will not God preserve his children through the trials and struggles that we face in this broken life? And will he not bring us home? Therefore, together with Mary, we rejoice We sing forth songs of praise to God. We can truly identify with the people of God living in the days when Christ came into this world. For we not only share their troubles and sorrow, but also their joy and their hope. For God has shown forth His great mercy by sending His Son into the world 
for our salvation. Christ came to be one of the poor, the lowly, the oppressed. For our sake, he became poor so that we might become rich. He was oppressed. He suffered countless insults. He was innocently condemned to death that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. Christ suffered the torments of hell to open for us the way of everlasting life. He humbled himself that we might be exalted. That's why at this time of year we remember Christ's birth with thankfulness in our hearts. That's why our soul magnifies the Lord and our spirit rejoices in God our Savior. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing Mary's song, hymn 17.